Um, I know some of you will have met me before last year, some of you know a little bit about my story, but I'll just give you a couple of minutes to introduce what we're going to be talking about today. So my name's Daniel Goodman, I lead the church in Cambridge, uh, and I've been doing that for five years, I've been an elder there for six years. And uh, we've got a warehouse just on the outskirts of Cambridge, and uh, over the years we've redeveloped this warehouse so that it's not the ugliest building on earth. It's now the second ugliest building on earth. <laughs> and um, the church is growing, so we went to two services, and uh, that was fantastic. But then uh, what was happening was all of the young families were going to the first service because they're all up anyway, and they want to get on with the day. So really, you've got a church of, say, 400, with all of their children going to the church of 200, which is the first service. So that's a bit of a difficult dynamic. And so we, we needed to change our children's work provision. Our children were going across the car park into a porter cabin. The porter cabin was about to be condemned. It was about to be condemned when we rescued it 20 years ago and <laughs> put it to use. And so uh, it's definitely on borrowed time. Because of that, that pressing need, we've got children, We've got to look after them, and the porter cabin is about to be condemned. So doing nothing isn't an option. And, and you'll, you'll get to points in life where that's the case. So we investigated putting an extension on our building, and to put a 10-metre extension on this warehouse was £2 million. Now, one of, the, one of the things is that Cambridge is expensive to build in, and also that the ground that we, are, we have our warehouse is very, very contaminated. So basically, it has to be put into a nuclear bunker somewhere at great expense, and then new ground has to be brought in. So we have this moment of realisation. It, it will cost £2 million to do what felt like a pretty basic extension. So... As a team, we sat down with this proposition before us. It's going to cost £2 million. We don't have £2 million. We probably had about £200,000 at the time. So you look each other in the eye and you say, do we want to commit to this? Do we want to have a 30-year mortgage? Do we want to saddle the generations to come with the decision that we make today? What are we really talking about? We're talking about two hours on a Sunday morning. If this family, our church, if it actually sat round and had two million pounds on a table in the middle, and the purpose of that was to make disciples, would we spend it on two hours a week? And we felt that, that we just wouldn't. A, we didn't have that money. And B, if we, the community, are spending all of our money and more to get someone else to look after our children for one hour a week, does that make any sense as our strategy? And it, that, that drove me to 
really looking at every aspect of our church structure. If this hypothetical money shouldn't go to Sunday mornings, then why does our actual money all go to Sunday mornings? We operate at a budget of around £450,000 a year, and we've got a number of staff members. And once you started totaling up how much time do our staff give to Sunday, how much money do we give to Sunday, what is that com- communicating to us as a family? It's Now, I want to say really early on that I'm not against meetings. But we need to have a face-to-facts reality check, which is simply this. The best meeting in the world in itself is not sufficient for us to achieve the Great Commission. It's like the perfect meal is not enough for you to get all the nutrients that you need for a week, is it? However good it might be. It's it's not the meal's fault. It's just ludicrous to expect that meal to provide all of that. And it's the same. So we we haven't changed our Sunday morning meetings. We haven't... It's, that's not the problem. The problem is only that. If you leave it there, then you're going to have problems. It's not a balanced diet. It's insufficient. So having looked at our resources and looked at our way of doing things, we realized that what we were trying to do really was an addition strategy for growth. Addition. And what we needed to be giving ourselves to was multiplication. So the first, the first thing just to kick around is the difference between addition as a strategy and multiplication. And this is really important for those of you who are planting churches, leading churches, but even those of you who are just leading in your own life. This balloon is your pastoral problem. Okay. (laughs) Hallelujah. (laughs) Okay. This this balloon is your pastoral problem. We're a church and we have pastoral problems. Okay? And each person has one. Now Rosemary here is gonna help me out. She's gonna come up. Let's give her a round of applause. In my spiritual discernment, I've discerned that she has a pastoral gift. Well, that's just great, isn't it? Because we've all got pastoral problems. So, as someone who's got a pastoral gift, we're going to lean on her as a church to help us with our pastoral problems. So, if everyone on the front row could just come and give Rosemary their pastoral problem, come on up. okay yeah okay we we have i mean isn't that fantastic rosemary's done very well she has added she has added to her workload but because she's gifted she has got away with it 
And luckily, she has served about 5% of the church. Now, let's get the second row to come up here and add their pastoral problems to Rosemary's uh, workload. Okay, it doesn't, it doesn't work, basically, does it? She's beginning to drop, she's beginning to drop them. Okay, Rosemary, thank you very much. You go back to your seat. So, can you see that, that what we were doing was we had one person... They were doing more, and more people were watching that person doing that. Okay, that's what your role was to watch. And as a church gets bigger and bigger and bigger, you need better preachers and better worship leaders and better pastors, so you get higher skill, which fewer people can do. So you get more people watching fewer people doing, but which is unbiblical anyway. But... I think here we had a situation which was just limited. Adding to someone's workload is a strategy which is very limited. It's up to the capacity of the person. It only helps a few people. And what's really been done? What's really been done is they've taken their problem and given it to you. Now, if Rosemary had taken what was her capacity to hold balloons, and used it to raise up five pastors, if she had multiplied her gift in them, and if we'd had six people there, or even five people, the people she has multiplied, and they took the pastoral problems, and she was free to keep reproducing, then we would have solved our problem. Because she was carrying the front row. We've got five or six rows. Five or six people could have done it. They could have done it if they had the capacity to do it. And the way they get the capacity is that someone teaches them. Now, what's quicker? Is it quicker for me to say, yeah, I'll take your balloon? Or is it quicker for me to say, I don't have capacity to take your balloon. I'm going to train someone up. That will take time. But when they do... They can take three or four balloons, as well as these other people that I've trained up who can take three or four balloons. So, we suddenly thought to ourselves, multiplication versus addition, multiplication wins. And actually, the commission in Genesis is go and multiply. And the commission in the New Testament is go and make disciples. I'll say it another way. Adrian Holloway, who's an evangelist, is a friend of mine. I phoned up Adrian, and I said, Adrian, how many people did you see saved last year? He's an absolutely classic, itinerant evangelist with every opportunity to preach the gospel that you might hope for. He told me that he had seen over a 1,000 people fill out a form that said to him, I've never, heard, I've never responded to the gospel before. I'm responding to the gospel for the first time, and I want to join a church. That's the form he's got. A thousand. So let's say I hire 
Adrian Holloway to join my church. My church is in Cambridge, and Cambridge has got 100,000 people in it. Adrian Holloway joins my church, and he begins to do what Adrian Holloway does and adds 1,000 people to my church every year. So, 1,000 people. I've never heard of such a thing. 1,000 people being added and saved every year to one church. So it goes up. And at five years, we've grown. And at 10 years, we've grown some more. And at 15 years, we've grown some more. 20 years into his ministry, we're not really scratching the surface of Cambridge. It's up here. But this line is the multiplication line. If, if I said to my church, there's 300 of us here, every single person in this church needs to add one person to our church. If we do that, we are multiplying ourselves. Everybody's doing it. It takes a long time, but everybody's doing it. At year five, Adrian Holloway, a.k.a. Addition, I'm using his name in vain because he's not suggesting we should do it like this, but let's think about it this way. This is the addition line and this is the multiplication line. At year five... Addition looks brilliant, and multiplication looks pants. At year 10, addition looks even better, and multiplication looks really poor. Now, this line is going up very, very slightly here. That's a bad sketch. But by about year 12, 13, If you looked at City Church Cambridge at year 10, you'd say addition as a strategy is the way to go. Because at year 10, it's totally beating us. But at year 15, in fact, at year 17, we've reached more than twice the number of people in Cambridge. That is amazing, isn't it? Would you think it's conceivable that a local church could reach a whole city? A local church can reach a whole city in less than 20 years. Not with the world's best evangelists, they can't. But with everybody playing their part, they can. Now, I as a lead elder in a church am really tempted to look this good. I want to look this good. I want to get these results. And so there's pressure, whether it's internal or external, on churches to to make that happen. But actually what I think we're called to is to make this happen. How do you do it? I don't have the answers. I've just got lots of questions. Well, one, one way... So the question was, how do you do it? One way is to decide that you're going to do it. Decide to resist this and decide to embrace that. I'll give you a really simple example of what that has meant for us at City Church. We want to multiply elders. Okay, pick anything, but we want to multiply elders in this example. And one of the things we need to do, therefore, is to spend time with them. And we need to give them responsibility. One of those responsibilities might be hosting a meeting, another might be preaching. 
If our strategy was addition, then you get the best preacher doing the sermon. Because that way you can add people to your church because they're hearing the best preacher every time. But if you're trying to multiply preachers, the best preacher might choose, and this is what we've done, to not preach, as Rosemary was doing with, would have been doing with pastoral care. She's not doing the pastoral care. She's equipping other people to do the pastoral care. And that means giving it away. For us to multiply preachers, we don't do the preaching. You get the best preacher to train other preachers. But it's the meeting and the quality of the meeting is not the be-all and end-all of what you're trying to do as a church. So the quality will go down. Why would I want to see one of Rosemary's disciples when I could see Rosemary? So the whole community has to embrace this multiplication. If we... Oh, I haven't given you the handout. That was partly because I thought you'd all start reading my handout. But um, I'll give it to you now. And there might be some answers in there. So that's one, one each. <coughs> Mind doing that? And there'll be, some, there'll be some tips in here for how we can begin to do it. So this is for you to have. If you open it right up to the, the very biggest middle spread, like that, Are there any left on this side? All right, okay. So, this, this, is, this is how we do it, is a very philosophical, theological question. You need to come to a conviction on the fact that you want to do it. That's really important. How you do it, is a mixture of theology and practice. If you look at this sketch here, this is from Mike Breen and 3DM guys, so I'm not claiming that I've come up with this, but what, what Mike says is that we need these three learning environments to truly make disciples. So what you want, you want your church to be here in the Venn diagram, right in the middle. I'll just explain what they are. Classroom is when you have an expert and you have a whole load of passive listeners. And what, what we can do in City or in maybe other churches is we can do that really well on a Sunday morning. A sermon is a classic classroom context. You have an expert, you might believe they're filled with the spirit, you hope they are, and you believe that you're listening with the spirit. But the, the, the learning style is this classroom. Paul said... You know how I lived when I was amongst you. I can say, I can get up here and preach and you guys can listen to me for half an hour, but you don't know how I live, do you? So I can do classroom and still be living a double life. So it's got some strengths and it's got some weaknesses. You can get great information, but you can't test my life. You're not living it with me. You can't ask questions, you can't object, you can't try it out for yourself. Mike talks about the need for an apprenticeship experience. 
So if we're wanting to multiply ourselves, let's say Rosemary wants to multiply her pastoral gift. She can do a little bit of Friday night in the church crypt training where you listen to her because she's the expert, but that's just another classroom. What would be great is if you could do it with someone. So you're going to come and have a pastoral session. Rosemary's going to be there, but she's not actually going to be leading it. She's got someone else leading it. She's there to coach them. The lovely thing about apprenticeships is that the person is there on hand to say, I know the books say this, but I've always found that. You need, the book says you need that tool, but actually the book says you need all those tools, but actually you only ever need a hammer or a screwdriver or a spanner. Or you've got that wrong, let me come up quickly and fix it so it's not high-risk, big drama. If you imagine the plumber trying to fix... The, the drains, and it's suddenly there's, it goes everywhere, but he can quickly turn it off. There's a little bit of mess, but it's not as dramatic as it would have been if he wasn't there. So in our church, do we have any apprenticeship contexts? Is the, ho- the totality of our church life a classroom? We found that a city church, Sunday mornings were a classic classroom, and our small groups were trying to reproduce Sunday mornings. So they had one person who worked really hard on a Bible study, present their Bible study, and everyone listens to them politely and asks a couple of questions. Slightly more interactive, but basically still an academic classroom context. And Mike talks about having an immersive experience, which is where you are surrounded by people doing it. If you're trying to learn Spanish, of course you go to some Spanish lessons, yeah, the classroom, but you might also go to Spain. In Spain, you will have an immersive experience where everybody is talking Spanish. I think we do great immersive experiences with worship. For 30 minutes, every week of my life, I have stood with other men and women and worshipped. I've been surrounded by them. I've seen how to raise my hands and how to kneel on the floor, how to bring a prophetic word. I've seen it. I've learned it because I've just seen it. But do we have that for the rest of what we're called to do and be? Do we have immersive experiences for young mums of where they can be with other godly mums to see, not to hear about it, but to see and and be with people who are just doing it? Bill Hybels talks about high potency plus Close proximity plus clear communication, maximum impact. The point of that is close proximity. Paul says, you know how I lived when I was amongst you. It must have been true that they did know how he lived. The way they knew how he lived was because they observed it. My wife can stand up at City Church on a Sunday morning and preach, but she's also a mum. So... She can't say through preaching, you know how I live as a mum. You know how I live as a preacher, but you don't know how I live as a mum until we have overlapping lives in that sphere. It makes, this trajectory makes everything more complicated. Because it's, and it's, it's a good type of complicated because it's, not, it's no longer about let's have a great preach and let's have some great sermon. Great worship and great sermon. Now we're thinking 
how can each person in this place be obedient to Jesus when Jesus said, you go and make disciples? How do you go and make disciples as a young mum for other young mums? You have to open your home to them. The classroom is great because it's efficient and Westerners love efficiency. One person can talk to 300 people and it's done. Well, what is done? I believe in preaching, so I'm not going after meetings, so I want to keep saying they are important but not sufficient. If we can add to that overlapping lives where we are creating a really intentional apprenticeships where Rosemary is reproducing herself so that pastoral care is taken care of, so that the, the preachers can reproduce themselves so that teaching is taken care of. At City Church, we are dreaming about planting churches. We're dreaming about planting five or six churches around Cambridge over the next 20, 30 years. No timescales. I don't want to do that by driving around like a lunatic preaching. I want to do it by multiplying leaders. The way to multiply leaders is to invest in those leaders, invest in them, then give them an opportunity to lead, because that's how we learn. I want this guy, Joe, to lead a church. I don't just send him off to lead a church, but I help him grow as a church leader until he can stand on his own feet and can fly the nest. It can be... I feel like I need to keep apologising because don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying this is, there's only one way to plant churches. Everything is contextual. If you have a pioneering entrepreneurial couple who have heard from God, then do not stand in their way because you'll be standing in God's way. But that's not the only way that churches get planted. So we've said to our children's worker, Mandy, you're a fantastic children's worker. You've got great great personality, you're bubbly, you're larger than life, you're fantastic. But the trouble is, it really depends on you. What, when you were sick that weekend, the whole kid's work collapsed. That wasn't good for that weekend, but it's certainly not good as a legacy. Stop doing children's work and start multiplying children's workers. When we plant these five or six churches, we want them to go with people who know how to lead kids. That starts now. So the, the, the roots of these churches that were planted are already taking ground. Does that make sense? We're already investing in leaders. We don't know where they'll end up. We're already investing in administrators and in kids' workers. And that takes some of this and some of this and some of that. And that means you have to slow way down. You have to slow, slow, slow way down. Rosemary could just keep picking things up, keep picking things up, keep picking things up until she breaks. And that's quick. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And we are called to make disciples of all nations. That is a process. It takes time. I want to talk about the bottom left-hand corner of this um, 
hand out really briefly. Because I think there's a key piece of information in here which um, I found really helpful. And it's this. Discipleship is a lifelong process that never comes to an end until you're in glory. When, when Jesus even gave the commission in Matthew 28, it says that the, re, the, like the resurrected Lord Jesus appeared to the disciples. Now, you remember the disciples had heard him call. They'd followed him for three years. They'd seen every miracle and everything he had done. They'd seen his death and they had seen his resurrection. The risen Lord Jesus appeared to them and it said they, and they worshipped him and some doubted. You ever notice that? Even at that point in their discipleship, they were like, yeah, yeah but... And I found that to be true of myself. It's, you don't get to a point where you've been discipled. I'm the perfect Christian. That doesn't exist, does it? So I think we can lazily think of, when you become a Christian, you need to have a period of discipleship which you'll grow out of. And you, you were talking about you, you care especially for people after they've given their life to the Lord before they get baptised, which is a key, it's a key step in the ladder, but it's not the totality of discipleship. So the person who's been the Christian the longest here should still be pursuing discipleship for themselves and for other people. But also, discipleship begins before they've given their life to the Lord. Okay, this is a bit, I don't know if you agree with me, but here's my experience. I sit at the table on the beginning of Alpha, and there's all these people here who don't know Jesus. And I say, why have you come? And they give me all these answers. And then I tell them who Jesus is. And then I tell them, why did Jesus die? And then I tell them, who is the Holy Spirit? Then I tell them how to pray, yada, yada. By week 10, week 11, week 12, perhaps they've given their life to the Lord. Let's say at week 10, they give their life to the Lord. Can you say that I have not been discipling that person until that moment? Of course I have. They've been growing in their understanding of Jesus. They've been growing in their awareness. They've been growing in their conviction. That is part of a discipleship process. And we, the church, should give attention to every single step on this journey and should celebrate every single step on the journey. That's a completely random, you know, set of examples. But the point is, if someone graduates from with a theology degree, we should celebrate that moment. If they become the lead elder of a church, we should celebrate that moment. But we shouldn't celebrate it more than the person who goes from not knowing anything about Jesus to knowing something about Jesus. Or going from being saved but having a completely messed up life to being saved and beginning to make wise decisions about their lifestyle. And if we only ever talk about the people at the top end, if we only celebrate that, if we only throw resources at that, people are going to believe that that's the only thing that's important. Whereas all of it is important. Any any. Does anyone disagree with that? Okay, turn to the person next to you. If there's three of you in a, in a row, just the three of you turn together. 
And each one, just say one thing that you think God is saying to you from what I've said in the first bit of this session. One thing that you feel you've learnt, or you feel God has impressed upon you, or you feel is key information. One significant thing, just share that with the others, with the pair or the three that you're with. Okay, you've got two minutes to do that. people feedback on what they said they've learned. First three people. Who, who, who'd be willing to share? Yeah. Uh, what helped me focus on the fact that actually we or I spend a disproportionate amount of effort and time focusing on a very small period of the week considering what I believe is that it's a lifelong thing rather than just a Sunday thing. Yeah, brilliant. It's not easy realisation to have, is it? It's the teaching and learning is very good. And we need that, but we need to grow past that to, to the conviction of what we have been taught and what we have learned mm. so that we can pass on yeah. anointing, not just thoughts and practice. Mm. It's got to go from the head to a heart conviction and to the hands and the feet where you're actually doing it. Yeah. One more? Yeah. Okay, we'll have to do that. Well, I can't have the word conviction, but I'm kind of convicted that I'm neither disabled or being disabled, mm -hmm. which is just kind of lazy. Yeah. Just a, a short line that too many trees and not enough millions mm. needs to be spread. Mm. Yeah. So God, it's it's amazing how I can feel like I've said one thing. But God is saying a whole bunch of things to, to us. And this idea that you've mentioned about being discipled, I, I think we need to reimagine what we mean when we say be discipled. Because what I've always grown up with is discipleship is this. 
A young man is discipled by an older man once a week over coffee where they tell them to fess up to all the bad things they've done. <laughs> and that, again, like a Sunday morning meeting, that is important but not sufficient. Because we, we need to submit all of life to the glory of God. And so every single part of our life is a subject for our discipleship. I've put this chart up because we found this really helpful way of thinking. That a person has different spaces in their life in which they operate. This is called proxemics. It's really well established and Architects will take this into account when they design public spaces like schools, hospitals, etc. like that. But you can see it sociologically, that a person might have one or two confidants. So for me, it would be my wife and my best friend. That is an informal thing in the sense that the church can't tell me who my best friends are. Then we have this slightly larger space, which is like a family-sized space of, say, 12 people. And in churches... That would be a small group, okay? Then there's public space, which is loads and loads of people. And each of these spaces in your life has opportunities for discipleship. It has strengths and it has weaknesses. It has possibilities and it has limitations. I, I feel like I'm working you quite hard, but... I'm trying to work you quite hard because I'm trying to sow a few thoughts that you can take away and begin to unpack. What this means for you, I can't tell you. But what we discovered was that this person can have a deep and meaningful conversation with these people, and they would naturally do that. But we were asking that person to do that with all these people. So we were saying to our small groups, this is the place where you're known. I know you can't be known on a Sunday morning, it's way too big. But this is the place where you bear your soul. This is the place where you confess your sins. This is the place where you turn to when you've got a gambling problem, when you're in debt, when your marriage is on the rocks. I'm not sure if we ever said it, but we were certainly saying it and implying it with everything we had within us. And we were punishing people for not doing it. And it's just unfair. This is an absolutely brilliant space, the sort of family-sized space where you know you're known. But if this doesn't exist for the person, there's a whole part of their life they can't open up with. Obviously, if this person only exists in this space, the Sunday morning then they're really limited. And if we say that actually this is okay, it's okay for you to come and sit on a row, that's all you need to do to follow Jesus. And, and to be, just to be real with ourselves, it's not, it's not simply what we say that gets heard, it's what we do, it's how we build things, it's what we celebrate, it's what we communicate. You guys who are planting churches have this you have this small group size and this is where relationships can happen this is where these intimate relationships might be possible this is where 
life on life can happen. This is where you can say, you know how I lived when I was amongst you. So in a way, you've, you've got a ready-made set of advantages, which is you don't have this dragging your attention away from this, which is one of the key places where people change and get discipled. Home group. Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. So that that that's good. But within that, you have this. But even within this, there might be some things that you wouldn't be willing to talk about. And, and actually, if you're a guest, all the more so. I mean, if you're a guest, you're coming into, here's 12 people who all believe the same thing and all go back a long time, and this is their house, and I'm the guest, and I don't know anyone, and I don't believe this stuff. It's a bit stacked against them, isn't it? So actually, lots of new people find this more comfortable place to start. And that's, that's understandable. For us to begin to take them down this way will help them grow. But this, this is a great front door. Some people come through this way by being your best mate, even though they're not saved. And over years and years and years, you bring them around. I just want you to turn to your friend again, your neighbours on the row, and just think about your church and think about where these spaces are formalised in your church and whether they exist formally. Do you have small groups? Do you have discipleship triplets or pairs? Do you have big Sunday morning meetings? I'm not saying you have to have these things. I'm just asking the question, do you? And are you expecting the right things from them? Are you expecting people to turn up on a Sunday morning and be best mates? Are you expecting 150 people to all turn up on a Sunday morning and be best mates and have lifelong relationships and be open with one another? They don't even get a chance to talk, let alone the fact that that wouldn't be possible. So just very quickly turn to your neighbours and say, why don't you say one thing that you've found helpful about what I've said, rather than asking all those, answering all those questions I've just said. Think, answer one, one thing that you found helpful with reference to your church. Okay? Go.
Can I have your attention, please? I just want to say that I know that I've gone after meetings, but I've only done that by way of comparison. I don't dislike meetings. We have kept all of our meetings. But meetings are insufficient to do the whole commission in all of life. I have focused on really practical sociological things, but that's not because I don't believe the Holy Spirit has is all important. The Holy Spirit is all important, but he does give us common sense and give us wisdom, and we need to be wise in how we build. Paul says we need to be master builders. So please give me the benefit of the doubt if I've overstated anything or I've skewed one way. It's just to try and help us to think about it. The most important thing to say is that it's time to eat some burgers. Okay? So let's go upstairs and do that. Yeah.